Hello and welcome. Thanks for checking out the first 10 pages. It's David here, just talking to myself in a room in my parents' house because I'm home for the holidays. This is the second of two special episodes that we're releasing that were recorded before Kia and I settled on the first 10 pages. Uh, initially, we, we were going to talk about the whole film and we recorded a couple and um, two of them were really good that we just we want to still release. So the first was the Fargo episode with Melina Wicks. And this one is with uh, Seesaw development producer, the brilliant and insightful Billy Bowering. Uh, he chose the cult British gangster film Sexy Beast. It's really, really good. I'm really excited for you to hear this uh, episode coming up. So we start the uh, the show by talking about Billy's background and how he got into the industry. Um, and we ask if he can pinpoint exactly what makes a great screenplay and then we start talking about Sexy Beast itself at around the 9 minute 40 mark. Now, a difference with this episode, as I mentioned, is we go through the entire plot. And that starts at around the 17 minute and 13 second mark. And some other things just want to point out is my microphone quality is terrible. Don't know why. It sounds distant and tinny. Uh, we were using a different uh, recording software at the time which I think was the culprit because during the recording, from memory, everything sounded fine, but whatever. So bear that in mind. It's still, it's not unlistenable. So I think, you know, but you will notice it. Uh, And also I struggle with name pronunciation throughout basically the entire episode. So thanks again for checking out the first 10 pages. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on socials. We are first uh, at first10pod, 10 spelt out, T-E-N. And email first10pod at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. Fade in, interior screenplay podcast day. Welcome. Today we're talking uh, about screenplay for Sexy Beast. I'm David Ferrier here with screenwriter Kia Wilkins. Hi, Kia. Hello. And our guest today is Billy Bowering. Billy, can you, um, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Can you give us a bit of uh, your background with writing and film and television? Uh, yes, I suppose I can. It, I mean, short though it is. Um, my, I currently work for Seesaw Films um, in development. I worked for a company called Fremantle before that in TV development. Um, and going back again, I worked in London for a company called Number Nine Films, which is um, a producer called Stephen Woolley and Elizabeth Carson. Um, and that was really sort of, I suppose, my first kind of foray into getting proper jobs in the industry. But before that, I was kind of messing around with scripts and doing coverage. Um, and that's really how I sort of got my first sort of step. Billy, it says on your, on, on your bio on the um, Seesaw website, you started out working as an apprentice carpenter building scenery on films like Mike Lee's Mr. Turner. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah, I did do that. Yeah, oh, so what a my, film. Yeah, it's a great, yeah, again, another great film. So, I mean, uh, I, Mike Lee's um, Mr. Turner is the sort of pinnacle of my carpentry career. There are also a lot of commercials and films that you really don't want to see, uh, like Diana. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so my dad's a, uh, my dad's a construction manager. Um, he's been a carpenter building scenery for as long as I've been alive, so... In some sense, I kind of grew up around the film industry. You know, you go to work with your parents when you're little, and I did it with my dad, and it was film sets I was running around. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd spent about two years, maybe a year and a half, two years after university, going and working with my dad, teaching me how to 
put bits of wood together and running around film sets, which oh. again and was speaking brilliant. of that university, you've um, glossed over that. That was an English English literature. Is that is that right? Yeah, I did. I studied English. So yeah. that that sets you up pretty well for diving into the the world of screenplays and. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It it teaches you. Well, I mean, it teaches you a lot of things, but it it, it teaches you kind of especially structure and story. And gives you kind of quite a strong sense of where story comes from um, and sort of what it is at its core. And mm. once you sort of go through this kind of history of literature, and like you say, it has to be sort of analytical. Like, I mean, I don't think you could do it if you didn't just love reading, but it is an analytical degree. So the more you read and the more you analyse, just the number of similarities you start to see and the way stories are shaped, the way they're structured... Um, and when you come to screenwriting, which, by the way, was not anything to do with my degree, like we never touched on that as a type of writing, but when you come to TV and film writing, it really kind of distills story, I think, more than any other type of writing, where you know novels, poetry, plays have such an intense focus on language. Mm. Um, screen, some screenplays do, and I actually think the one we're going to talk about today does, but really story and shape of story is everything in screenplays. What, yeah. is, what is, um, how similar is doing coverage to your, your role now? Because I, I anticipate there are some similarities. You're, you're reading a lot and sort of having to decide whether or not it's any good. Uh, yeah, I and mean, that's, yeah, well, that's really it. I mean, it's, um, to be honest, not too dissimilar. And it's a great way to get started. Like if, if people are trying to get into film and tv in this industry and that's really where their kind of love and expertise such as they are when you're young lie you know in writing and in screenplays it's a great place to get started partly because it forces you to read so much and Mm. just you know as everyone everyone knows like the more you read the more you learn um but once you actually do step into the industry and you start to have to you know read to actively develop things for a company and look to take things through development into production, it all starts with that first question of uh, quality. Is it good enough? Um, I think where coverage starts to maybe veer away from development, or perhaps that's the other way around, where development sort of veers away from coverage, is coverage should give you a very strong sense of that first question of, is this worth reading? Like, is this something that, is there something in the writing, something in the voice, something in the story that is worth, amid the just the huge number of scripts that come your way, that's worth taking notice of? Um, development then asks a number of other questions, which is some more practical things. It's the slightly drier side of things in some ways. Like, it's questions about, you know, the, is there a market for this story? Mm. Um, how likely or how possible is it for a story like this to get financed? Uh, to what extent can you place cast that can raise money? And suddenly, yeah, there's a whole there's a whole load of other questions which are slightly more practical and more logistic. I think. Okay. Um, so to yeah. take it back to that uh, first first part of that process of just you know identifying something that makes the screenplay worth reading and I suspect this is the question that you get asked in every meeting that you take with a writer and every time you sit on a panel but what are you able to uh, I guess pinpoint what it is (laughs) that that will make a a great screenplay or what makes you sit up and take notice when something lands on your desk what makes it stand out from the hundreds that you've read 
Um, I mean, the short answer to that question is no. Um, there are, and this is, you know, this, it kind of goes unsaid sometimes, but I think one thing you sort of have to acknowledge in an industry like this is taste is everything. A screenplay that I love, somebody else might not like and vice versa, and that's obvious. Um, I think because of sort of studying literature, because I kind of came to reading screenplays quite late and really I started with novels and poetry and plays and all of that, I have a particular interest in language. So if somebody can put a great sentence together, that immediately grabs me. Um, just mm. the quality of the writing is something that will always grab me. Shape, structure, form, that can be worked on. Um, that's something that can kind of be taught and learned and molded. And once you do go through that process of development, that really is a lot of, you know, that's where a lot of the time and effort goes into. It's, um, it's a really huge, it's a hugely collaborative process. So there are elements of the writing that, you can find people to help you with if I, I don't know that kind of just quality and voice is something that you can that feels to me like something innate voice is everything and I think having something to say um, it's possible to put a really compelling really fun piece of writing together to read that ultimately doesn't really have a strong thesis behind it that to me despite the pleasure in reading it, becomes something that's really hard to develop into a show or a film. Well, let's find out what um, this screenplay has to say. You've selected Sexy Beast, the 2000 British black comedy written by Louis Mellis and David Sinto. Brutal gangster Don Logan recruits retired safecracker Gal for one yeah. last job, but it goes badly for both of them. Do the job. No, Don. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. I can't. You can't. I can't. Don't do this. Do what? What am I doing? This. Is your middle name ungrateful or what? I'm retired. Are you gonna do the job? It's not a difficult question. Yes or no? Say it. You see, girl, where there's a will, and there is a will, there's a way. There's always a way. Now, Billy, why have you chosen this screenplay? Run us through it. Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, firstly, I love the film. That really is the basis of it. Um, it was also, uh, you know, two, when was it? Year 2000. I would have been about 13, 14. Um, it was a film that I would have watched around that period. And as a British film, it, it did a huge amount for British film in general. Um, and I think even at the time that was sort of apparent. I, they, the screenwriters themselves, um, sort of came out of the blue. I think in some ways. Yeah. Um, they hadn't done a huge amount before. Um, I know they were playwrights, I believe, that they they had written a play that was being turned yeah. into a film that went tits up because yeah. creative differences. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. this was this was their sort of recovery project they did this to try and purge the experience of their first and yeah and you can kind of feel some of that anger and bitterness in it which is brilliant and i and i so i think louis he, he did a number of odd jobs um and then eventually turned to acting and then gave up acting quite quickly and as you say here became a playwright and i think this was as far as i'm aware gangster number one was really the sort of one play in his um you know in his canon if it can be a canon with one play um the other writer, David Sinto, uh, came from, I think he was a, actually a bouncer. 
Hmm. Um, so he had even less of a sort of background in writing and a less of a background in, you know, performance art and the creative industries in general. And, you know, they can, I think they considered themselves and I think a lot of the British film industry at the time considered them outsiders, um, which is kind of fascinating to me. I think you can start, to, I really think you can see a lot of that in why they wrote the script the way that they wrote it. Yeah, definitely. I think as well, you, um, you know, it's very interesting that I read they wrote it in three weeks that they largely, their writing process was kind of, you know, they were both actors, so they just sat in a room and they just improvised dialogue back and forth and the, yeah. that was their process for coming up with this screenplay. So potentially, you know, they, they benefited from the fact that they didn't sit down with this um, preconceived idea or understanding of how a screenplay was written and they just... They just bashed it out in three weeks. It's got one of the yeah. great uses of uh, ellipses throughout. It's just a non-stop dot, dot, dot between yeah. uh, breaking up sentences and even the big print. It's uh, all over the place. Yeah. I think it that, I mean, it's something you can kind of see in their voice immediately. Like it's very earthed. Um, it feels very real. And yet at the same time, it's completely heightened and stylized. Mm. And to me that does something really interesting this goes back to what i was saying about what grabs me when i read any script is that because it's so heightened and stylized this to me feels like a piece of writing where language itself is important and there is a focus on language um rather than simply plot story character language is kind of the first port of call yeah definitely um very specifically places it in uh you know, a time, uh, a place, a, a class of people as well. Like it's very, it, you know, within two sentences of the opening dialogue, you're like, oh, okay, I know, I know mm. which, what world this film is in. Yeah. And it's the world of, you know, of British gangsters. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's sort of where the vernacular comes in. And, the, you know, to answer that question about why I sort of love this script and love this film, you described it as a black comedy, which I thought was really interesting. Um, this is a heist movie that doesn't look anything like a heist movie. And that really is what is so fascinating about it. And it sets up a number of conventions that give you a clue as to what type of film you're watching, what type of story you're in, um, you know, what kind of narrative lineage, if you like, it's playing in. That's partly due to the vernacular. That's partly due to the shape of the story. And then it keeps changing it. It keeps taking really crucial conventions of those genres and of those narrative lineages and deliberately moving against them, taking the left path when you're supposed to take the right path and ending up in completely unexpected territory. Do you think that this movie came out around the same time as in the same sort of era as uh, Snatch and Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, which um, have very strong identities themselves of that British gangster genre? Do you feel like this is a somewhat forgotten British gangster classic? I mean, I hope not. It's a lot, <laughs> it's, it's a lot better than those films. Because um, also, you know, that genre goes way back. So, like, when I think of Sexy Beast, the film, as its sort of precursor, the film I think about is a film from the 80s called The Long Good Friday, which was a Bob Hoskins film, um, which was set in the East End of London around the Docklands, which if you've ever been to London now, the Docklands is kind of like the second city. It's full of, you know, Canary Wharf and high-rise glass towers and a lot of finance and bankers and all that sort of stuff. But back in the 80s, 
it was where quite literally the Docklands of London used to be. And there'd been about a half a generation where the Docklands had been abandoned and it was just a complete desolate wasteland. And it's one of the best examples of London on film. Um, and it has a similar sense of kind of the importance of language and wit and style in dialogue, which again is not really even so much part of the sort of British gangster film genre. It's part of that kind of Cockney London criminal vernacular. Like it's a, it's a language and a dialect, which is full of puns and humor. It's full of witticism. Um, and yet at the same time being very sort of very earthed. And, you know, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh to Guy Ritchie, but I, I, and the language in those films certainly borrows from that vernacular and from that history of storytelling and um, dialect. But I also felt more with those films like it was borrowing or heavily influenced by that sort of early 90s Tarantino-type gangster vernacular, whereas Sexy Beast felt to me like a more authentically british version of that um all right should we get into the plot i've broken it up into three acts even though it doesn't neatly fit into three acts um but uh shall we shall we proceed sure okay well we start uh we get to know gaul and his life in spain we meet his wife Dee, Dee, their neighbors h and jackie they're all from london all living a life of luxury uh, along with the young local boy Enrique, who helps around their beautiful hillside villa. While sunbathing by the pool, Gaul is almost killed by a giant tumbling boulder that crashes into his pool. Gaul, Didi and the neighbours have a barbecue. Gaul and H and Enrique go hunting for rabbits. It's a bit of a, a misadventure, the hunting trip. This is the fun of the, the script, the establishing of the world. Yeah, we're in paradise. Mm. Yeah, and I think that the the boulder rolling down the hill, um, you know, it's definitely the moment for me where you're reading the screenplay where you lean in and you go, oh, there's something, there's something special about this one. Um, and I think, I think what that also does is it buys them a bit more time to indulge in that paradise and in that status quo because it creates this sense of, you know, I, I guess of metaphor, of allegory that there is something very dangerous coming towards these characters. And so because it creates that tension, you um, all of that stuff that could be seemingly frivolous, you know, the rabbit hunting and all of that stuff takes on this sense of like, oh, there's a clock ticking. Um, yeah, is that it. is that sort it, of how you read that, Billy? Yeah, exactly. It's foreshadowing, which again, it's a, which is a very sort of literary technique. Um, and I would even go back kind of further than the opening lines of, dialogue that you were talking about here like if you read the very very first line of the script in the big print um blackness suddenly intense brightness and one thing i think that's very interesting about the script and i've kind of read this since um in interviews with the writers that it was originally inspired by a painting by david hockney um huh. they never mention which painting um but to look at the film I assume that it's Hockney's very famous painting of um, a man swimming underwater in a swimming pool and somebody else standing at the edge looking down at the floor, which is called Portrait of an Artist. That painting came from this kind of bizarre juxtaposition of two completely separate images, one of a boy staring at the floor and one of someone swimming underwater and Hockney put them together. So 
that painting has a weird kind of uneasiness. There's a sort of, um, there's a kind of like clear discord at the heart of this paradise. And to me, that's exactly what this film sets up. And you get it twice, I think, in the opening section. You get it with the boulder coming down the hill, which is obviously like a clear literary device that is foreshadowing its metaphor. And you get it again, I think he puts um, his gals on the barbecue and it kind of ignites and blows up in his mm. face a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, and this is what I mean about how language, this is like, it's a very literary script and I'm jumping forward a little bit because there's another painting that plays a role in this film and it comes towards the end in the, well, not quite towards the end, the sort of beginning of the third act, if they are broken down into acts. And the writers in the big print, in the scene, and I don't want to give too much away, but in the scene where they, where Gal finally turns up and does the job and walks into this group full of men planning this heist. Um, the Let me guess, just, the dog's playing poker, that painting. No, not quite. <laughs> the, the writers in the big print reference Rembrandt's The Night Watch, um, oh. which could not be more different from Hockney's uh, portrait of an artist which is all about light and color and brightness and yes there's a weird discord to it but the night watch is one of the most famous examples of kind of darkness dominating a painting um it's almost spotlit so there's a bright intense light in the middle of this scene of men um and the light is so bright and so intense that actually all the darkness around it just dominates the entire picture and then if you come back to that very first line of this script blackness sudden intense brightness you've seen how in a very literary sense they've set up these opposites these opposing forces that once you get into the story you'll see everywhere of course with Gal and with Don. So here's a question that I mean the adage is that you know the, the first 10 pages are where a development executive is going to know whether you're worth your salt as a screenwriter uh, and as you point out this film subverts and sort of plays with structure, plays with genre in interesting ways. Uh, so what, as a development executive, what do you imagine the reaction would have been reading the first 10 pages of Sexy Beast? Do you think it is it uh, announces itself as uh, a masterpiece, if that's not too, uh, too hyperbolic a term, do you think it announces itself as that within the first 10 pages or do you think it takes its time a little bit more? Uh, I don't know. I mean, this is the thing about taste, isn't it? I, I think some people would have read the script and said, um, you know, by page 10, where's your inciting incident? Where's your, like, these specific kind of taught and trained beats that we're supposed to hit, they're not there. So what am I watching? I don't know what I'm watching yet. And some people will have read this and just not worried about any of that stuff and been completely drawn in by these characters by this language i think the thing that is undeniable is sort of what i started talking about where just the quality of the language is so extraordinary you feel like you're in very capable hands you feel mm -hmm. like these writers know what they're doing and so i mean for me personally although it's not really a fair question because you know i grew up with the film this is not a script that's landed on my desk and i would like to think i'd be someone who'd read this and see how brilliant it is i hope i would um, somebody did, obviously. People at Film 4 did when this was made. Um, Jonathan Glazer did. So that is something, though, that the, if the quality of the, the writing is good enough, I think you, as a reader, you give 
scripts and any piece of writing really a lot more leeway you allow it to kind of take you somewhere because you do feel like they know what they're doing mm-hmm. well we do get to uh the beginning of a plot an inciting incident um which happens off screen so we've had some time in, in paradise getting to we don't know gaul's background necessarily but there are some hints he's clearly uh uh, English and his wife and friends, they're English, they're in Spain, it's hot and beautiful. Um, there are a few cues that maybe his background is, you know, he's uh, formerly a, a, a criminal. Um, yeah, I should jump in just so, just so, I mean, and this is, this will make more sense to English readers and English viewers as well, which is, and this is kind of what I was touching on in terms of playing on kind of known and familiar sort of narrative lineages where there is a very strong a very well-known kind of community of expats living in Spain. Um, and, you know, there's even an area of Spain which is nicknamed the Costa del Crime in Britain. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> because cause this is where all the supposed East London... Ex-crimes, Bank robbers all yeah, retire they take, Exactly. They take their money and they go and live in the sun. So, And this is one of those... When you first join this film, that's what you feel like you're watching. And you're tight, close on these four friends, two different partners, two sets of partners. And that boulder coming down the hill, that barbecue exploding in his face. And then the moment they go to dinner, as you said, David, they, yeah. um, they go on their rabbit hunting trip and then they end up at dinner. And the first moment of any kind of discord or any sort of upset with the characters themselves, not with the sort of, you know, the symbolic kind of metaphorical stuff with the characters themselves is when Jackie walks into the restaurant to join Gal and Dee Dee and she, both of them, um, Jackie and H look like they've had a massive tear up and Gal sort of says to them like, whatever this is, can you leave this outside please? Mm. You know, let's just have a nice dinner. And so I think at that point you're supposed to believe that this is going to be something of a kind of domestic drama set within this expat community which brings all of that kind of well-known east london gangster crime vernacular that you've seen in films like the long good friday yeah but that's um not Not the case we 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 do find out that in fact jackie has had a call from don logan uh who wants gall for a job um this is the name just the utterance of the name don logan makes everyone extremely nervous we don't know why but um but apparently he's uh someone to be reckoned with yeah they're all fucking terrified just to hear his name like uh, (laughs) this this is the moment where i was truly sort of okay i need to know what what's going to happen now um because you just immediately want to know who this Don is. Yeah. Um, and we're and what, told, yeah, go on. Sorry, I was just like, what an incredible achievement in the writing as well, though, just to have that, just to do that with a lie, it was Don Logan. Yeah. And <laughs> immediately for all of, and you get it on screen brilliantly because you get close-ups on all the faces and you can just see them turn. But it's there in the script as well. And to put that amount of, kind of uh, just to give you that much as to who this person is just from uttering his name and i think jackie says like it was don logan and then she says i'm sorry yeah like and it's not just i'm sorry for taking the call i'm sorry for delivering the message it's like i'm sorry for you gal this is now coming back into your life (laughs) this is a problem yeah i think this is as well the the first sort of as you pointed out billy the first turn where it flips the genre on its head as you say this is up until now you've sort of been going am i in a in a 
sort of domestic drama and then you go oh i'm in a i'm in a one last job movie like yeah gal, exactly. gals saying oh no i'm retired i'm retired i'm retired and you go oh this is this is that movie where this is he's gonna yeah. have to do one last job for the for the kingpin i'll be honest that is i think probably the most important point to make about this script and i think you have to go back a step further and kind of understand or at least have an idea in your head which i think we all do inherently of what a heist movie looks like and it's one of those genres that actually is quite well defined the rules of it are quite well defined and you know i'm sure people who know more about the history of cinema than me will be able to give better examples or tell me I'm wrong when I say this, but there was a film in the mid-50s called uh, Reefy Fee by Jules Dassin, who's an American filmmaker who was um, exiled to Europe during the McCarthy years in in America, in Hollywood, because um, he was a member of the American Communist Party. And he went to France and he made this film Reefy Fee, which is in many ways just the quintessential heist movie. And I think we kind of, we all inherently know what they're supposed to look like which is either bloke who's either retired or is on the verge of retirement, has one last job, and it's the job to end all jobs. Like, this is mm. the big one. And maybe there's a little reluctance, but they do it. And that's really the bulk of your first act. The second act is getting the gang together, planning the heist, and then towards the end of the second act, you do the heist itself. And Reefy Fee, if anyone hasn't seen that, that film has one of the most extraordinary high scenes in the history of heist movies it's a oh man i'm excited 20... to go and watch this film now it's yeah there's a ama- reading list to go along with this episode already seriously this film is so good like there's a there's a f- maybe 25 minute long high scene which is completely silent um so it's all visual storytelling and it's all about the it's all about the solving of the puzzle and that's kind of you know, in the way detective stories, those whodunits, part of the game you're playing with the audience is like, can you give them enough that they can play the game of trying to guess who done it? With heist movies, it's about the puzzle. It's like, how intricate can it be? Um, how are they possibly going to pull this one off? And that's part of the satisfaction is seeing something very complicated and very intricate get solved. And so that will really usually take you through the end of the second act. And then the third act, if, you're, if it's a European film, the old timer who's there to do one last job will either get betrayed by his mates um end up in prison or dead if it's an american hollywood movie he runs off with the money and the girl and everybody's happy Um, (laughs) george clooney drive off into the sunset (laughs) and that that is your quintessential heist movie and we'll get i'm sure we will you know we're about to get to this but this is the major thing that this film does differently and you know we're still really early on by the time don's proposal hits us yeah, um, it all so it, it all comes out quite quickly. That's it. Well, immediately it's, it's, following. Oh, sorry, Billy, go on. Well, I was just going to say the main thing is like he says no instead of saying yes. Yeah, and so your act two looks very different. Um, but we'll yeah, we we'll get to that. that. Okay, so back at dinner, everyone's reacting to the news that uh, Don Logan has been in touch. Don is apparently on his way to Spain and needs to be picked up from the airport tomorrow. Um, Don is, of course, wanting Goal to take part in this job and he has told Jackie that the job has no risk, to which Goal reacts to and we find out he has spent nine years in jail following what was apparently also a no-risk job. Um, so that's the moment we, we kind of get an insight into how Goal feels about this. He's very upset and then at the end of his sort of frustrated 
uh, monologue. He uh, says he's going to order the calamari. We then go to a dreamscape uh, scene of Gaul staring down a six-foot-tall man-sized hair, um, which in the screenplay is much longer than, than what ends up in the f- uh, finished film. But uh, essentially Gaul stares him down, eating his calamari, um, while the hair shouts in Spanish and is very threatening. Did you guys have any uh, observations that you wanted to make about the dreamscape scene? Because it, there's, there are some elements of a otherworldly sort of um, uh, element brought into the screenplay. Well, it's a great one-two punch, I think. It's the, you know, as we said, they've just thrown a different genre at you than the one you thought you were watching and then it pulls the rug out from you again immediately after and says, oh, by the way, in this film we can get really surreal as well. Yeah, um, I which agree. Which I think is great. Yeah, and I think it makes it about character instead of about plot. And it's, um, I think it's a very clear signal that the arrival, because, I mean, the, like, it's an obvious, you know, meta, the metaphor is obvious. This is the arrival of... Don Logan, this hair, this kind of mm. evil, pernicious, violent presence that's standing over him while he's eating his dinner is Don about to arrive. But it's inside the mind of um it's inside the mind of Gal. So this again, this tells you that I think this is a story that is more about character and more about psychology than it's than it will be about story. The the, the way that scene is written, um I think he's described as a six foot tall man sized hair with black, dusty, silver studded Mexican trousers, Cuban heeled boots, <laughs> smokes a churro. Riding a donkey. Yeah, so it's like, but suddenly you're in a kind of, like, what are you in? You're in a sort of weird Western kind of frontier movie. Don Don Quixote. Yeah. (laughs) But it's, again, it's another kind of genre that's thrown at you. So you are in this sort of lawless frontier lands, which, and, you know, the the villain, the big bad guy is riding into town and we've all got to deal with him, which again is a type of genre and a type of narrative lineage that you sort of feel familiar with in some way. You just haven't seen it place like this or put in a film surrounded by the other things that are in this film Mm. um so after dinner uh gall and dd talk about their predicament they they talk about why they can't just run which i think is an important that's a question you would ask yourself as an audience member i i think and he says well we can't because that would be like a red rag to a bull for someone like don but we still haven't met yet but we're starting to understand um what kind of person don is so gall explains his plan he'll tell don thanks but no thanks I'm retired. We find out that Gaul's nickname is Jumbo, which didn't make the final film, but that's something fun from the screenplay. Uh, And finally, we do meet Don, who arrives in Spain and is driven silently, uh, in silence, by Jackie and H back to the villa. Uh, He's very silent and menacing and occasionally glancing over at Jackie. Um, His first line goes even further to establish the kind of person he is. There's no hello, there's no hugs or how you going, it's been a long time. He opens with, got to change my shirt, it's sticking to me, I'm sweating like a cunt. Yeah, (laughs) welcome, welcome Don. Good to see you Don. It's a great introduction Uh, and obviously in the film this is Ben Kingsley who went on to receive a, a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination for this role, but he is just brilliant in this. And uh, I was, I read an interview with him where he was talking about the, the fact that um, this dialogue, not a word of it was improvised and it is so fast paced and so back and forth, but it is, yeah, it's all on the page. Yeah. Which I think um, 
you know, you, you touched on earlier, Kier, when you were talking about the writers and how they work with each other. And you said, you know, a lot of the writing of this script came out of their improvisation. This feels improvised. And when you watch the film, it feels improvised. But you're right, it's all there in the script. And it's quite extraordinary. Well, I'm, I'm going um, to push through a bit more of the plot. Uh, step in at any point if you've got something you'd like to, to add or an observation you'd, you'd like to make. Um, so Don arrives at the villa and they sit around awkwardly. H tries to make small talk. Um, they clearly have history, but it's not very clear exactly what that is. Uh, Don and Gaul are left alone and Don goes, uh, goes about attempting to enlist Gaul for a bank robbery in London, which then starts one of the great exposition dump conversation montages. I counted, yeah. I think they cut between five different conversations. Yeah, it's so good. Um, it's excellent. Uh, anything yeah, you'd like to um, say about uh, that section? Because that really just sets everything up. Oh, it's it one of the best sequences, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's just, you know, it's one of those, every script or almost every script at some point gets to a point where it has to do something like this. Mm. You know, you just need to give the audience some information and how do you do it so it doesn't come across like exposition. And yeah, they managed to tell a story within a story within a story, cutting through multiple <laughs> characters, multiple <laughs> settings and timelines and the dialogue's overlapping. It's just done with so much pace and so much style the, yeah, I've got it. Yeah. There's even one point where Don answers his own question between two separate. Like yeah. he, with with Gaul, he asks the question, then it cuts to an earlier conversation where he's being told the info and he answers the question. The basics are <laughs> that crime lord Teddy Bass has learned about uh, a vault from Harry, uh, the bank's chairman, who he met at an orgy, um, a bank vault that um, that he he discovers or, or he sees an opportunity to break into. Anything else you'd like to add about that um, section? See, this is, a, yeah, one tiny other little thing, which I think is actually really crucial, which is it, it does, how, like, it, it answers that problem that scripts often find when they use narrators, which is how do you balance having a narrator without being expositional? And I'll be honest, personally, I love narration done properly, and I think it's a shame it isn't used more often. Um, but Don suddenly becomes, obviously he's a character in this and you're with him in real time, but he suddenly becomes a narrator and he says the line to Gal, he says, listen to your uncle Don, I'm going to tell you a little story. Mm. Now I know a bloke who knows a bloke who knows a bloke. <laughs> now this is a bloke you know. And he's taking, he's already set you up that firstly, I'm now stepping out of my role as a real person in this I'm now going to step up above and become a narrator and you can have all sorts of conversations about the freedom that that then gives you in terms of your language how you tell stories um, you know narrators have a kind of literary license that normal people don't have in the way they speak but he also sets up the layers that he's about to take you through he's I know a bloke who knows a bloke who knows a bloke great we're about to yeah, go through right. three or four different settings stages timelines characters and we're going to get that russian babushka doll thing isn't yeah, it exactly, like, yeah. <laughs> keeps opening up into a new a new layer of the story yeah so good well so gal declines as gently as he can trying to make excuses that will placate don that he's no longer match fit but uh don uh, increasingly becomes uh, aggressive and violent he will not take no for an answer um, and this increasing aggression and violence includes bursting into Gaul and Didi's room first thing in the morning and starts really violently uh, attacking him after Don 
immediately prior to that was talking to himself in the mirror and seemingly working himself up into a sort of a, a fury. Yeah, and pissing on the bathroom floor. Yeah. Just, oh, that's such yeah. a great character moment. That's, oh, that's what a dick. Really yeah. It's also, just so petty. Exactly. And also, do you know, because like, it's, it's kind of an iconic moment. It gets talked about a lot, that moment. And, but the thing that always got me isn't even so much him turning and pissing on the floor. It's that he's pissing with his hands behind his back, which <laughs> it, like, he's, he's just pissing with no hands, and it, which to me just feels completely psychotic. So during all, all of this, um, where it's a constant back and forth, where, where, where Don just keeps insisting that he'll do the job, and there is, there's the, the screenwriting um, uh, part with, with the refusal of the call, and there is literally a section in this um, screenplay, the dialogue is just Gaul and Don saying back and forth, Gaul saying, no, Don, Don saying, yes, no, yes, no, yes, I can't, you can, I can't, fat cunt, don't do this, Don. <laughs> Which I just thought was such a delightful, um, blunt way of, uh, of spending time in, with that moment. Yeah, the second yeah. act has such a, a specific rhythm to it. Um, mm. and, it's, and it's those kind of exchanges, I think, that set the rhythm. But you just, you're kind of just, um, I don't know, it really flies through this couple of sequences of the film. It does. It's it, frenetic, it feels very scary brief, energy. Yeah. 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 And I think part of the reason for that is that um, the thing I mentioned earlier about the way that this in some ways is a three-act structure, but in some ways isn't. And it all hinges on what Gal was supposed to do at the end of Act 1, which is say, yeah, all right, Don, I'll do mm. it. I'll do the job. Okay, what's next? Let's go. And so you're supposed to move into now a different section of the film. Um, yeah, the planning, the, yeah, the team, getting the team together, all that stuff. Yeah, mm. and, you, and you don't. He says no, which is... Yeah, it stays it, with... Stays with the decision. So act two, instead of being a kind of reset and having to sort of pick up that momentum again and, you know, find your way through that usually difficult kind of middle act, it's just a continuation of the first. Mm. And and what's interesting about that is that by refusing, by uh, having Gal refuse the call, which, you know, in screenplay terms is rarely will be dull to watch someone resisting and saying no over and over. But what it actually does is it for the second act, it weirdly flips almost who the protagonist is because it's Don who wants something. It's Don who's trying to find new and creative ways to get what he wants. Um, And you sort of, you're on his journey for a while. That's an interesting point. But, but so, but Ghoul is still active in that he's trying to as delicately as he can get this maniac out of his life once and for all without any sort of harm to his persons yeah that's it it's like it's a fascinating you're right i think that's really a very um insightful point that the the kind of the the protagonist does shift um but it's also a fascinating look at what you do with a passive character like how gal as you say david still fights but does it completely passively He's like he's weathering the storm. Um, yeah, he kind of allows himself to be emasculated. And it, yeah. It's like every single little moment. Like he, there's a moment in the after Don first gets there, they go to a bar after they've had their big kind of initial sort of row and tear up. He, um, they go to a bar and Don's sitting there and he starts talking about Jackie. I think for the first time, and he says like, "Oh, she's all right, isn't she?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah, she's lovely. She's a great laugh." And Don just says, "Big tits." And girl's yeah. like, "Yeah, she's a lovely girl." Yeah. 
and it's it's just that like how intense that effort is to not rile him up to not give him what he wants and don as you say kid becomes the protagonist because he just he wants something more than anyone else in this section and he will not um he will not back down he will not he does not do subtlety and he will he gets to a point where he just lays it out there and it's do the job. No, yes, mm. no, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's as well why if you asked a lot of people about Sexy Beast and who who the star of the film is, it's Ben Kingsley. You know, he's yeah. on the publicity material. It's because they've created uh, an antagonist and a villain who is so compelling and complex uh, and, and because of this structural thing of the fact that he actually is the one with the most... Um, I guess who's driving the action throughout the the back end of the film. He, yeah, yeah he he comes across as the lead character of this story. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Um, but that to me is so. I was just going to say that to me is the moment that it gets fascinating. Is when all kind of yeah. subtext and normal social propriety is just abandoned, and it's like, okay, we're going to talk about this directly. And then they just end up barking yes and no back at each other. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, it's through this section there comes a point where um, Don eventually sort of, I think he asks Gal and sort of says, like, you know, are you going to do it or not? He says, no. He says, are you happy here? He goes, yeah, I'm happy here. Um, and that really, this is the crux of their entire relationship. Don replies, I won't let you. Why should I? Mm. And... This to me is like, that's the thing that has actually been unspoken the whole time. Like they've, they've abandoned that earlier period where they weren't directly speaking about whether he was going to do the job or not, or job or not. That's out of the way. Now they're really talking for the first time about what's going on underneath it all, which is that Gal has something that Don wants. He has happiness. He has the woman he loves. He lives in a beautiful place. He's out of all of that history of, violence and crime and all of that and that is the thing that don just cannot abide he will not yeah. let him do it but but do you think that's i mean that's not something that don wants necessarily he just is evil and doesn't want gall to have it no i do think it is something that he wants and i think that's why jackie's so important because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay we're we're about to get to this point as well which is the sort of kind of midpoint if you do want to stick to that sort of stuff that yeah um where don finally leaves and the reason he leaves is gal turns around and says listen we both know why you're here it's not just about me and don does he feigns this kind of um like just incredulity like how mm. dare you what are you talking about Come here I, in a professional capacity yeah even I've though he's to... talked about his, his wife's past in pornography he said all, all sorts of things about all of them yeah and and that's the point where he says, okay, I can't, I'm, I want to leave. Get me a taxi. That's the bit that breaks him when Gal, for the first time, directly refers to. It's not quite as direct as Don's jealousy, but as I say, they're kind of mirror images of each other. This is sort of the point of this, right? And you know, you go back to the two sort of paintings that started this whole story off. That lightness, that darkness, Don is a sort of embodiment of that kind of impulse and that thing that used to drive Gal before he before it left him, before he gave it all up, before prison broke him or whatever mm. it was, all of that backstory that you, that's off screen. 
But Don is an embodiment of something in Gal, something that Gal would have very much understood about himself back then and doesn't want any part of anymore. And, you know, the mirror works the other way as well, which is that Gal is an embodiment of something within Don, something that Don does not have and wants. So, um, yeah, Don does abruptly insist on leaving after being um, confronted by the idea that he is there for Jackie. Um, so we then go to he's Donnie's on a plane, uh, ready to leave Spain back to England. We think it's well that was easy; they took care of it. Uh, but he's smoking a cigarette and he he refuses to put it out before takeoff. He's aggressive to the staff and other passengers and is ejected. Um, so he then returns to Gaul and Didi's place. He is furious. He rants at Don and smashes a bottle over his head, saying he's going to kill him. Uh, Enrique, the fourteen-year-old local boy emerges pointing a gun at Don. Don dares him to shoot before taking it off him and hitting him across the head. Didi then emerges with a shotgun. Yeah, this is it. This is the moment where it actually erupts. There's then a time, uh, time jump and we see that Gaul is in fact in London checking into the hotel where uh, Don told him he was going to stay, suggesting that he has accepted the job. So he meets up with uh, Teddy, the man from the orgy who discovered the job, who asks where Don is. Uh, Gaul claims that Don called him from Heathrow Airport when he'd arrived from Spain and uh, feigns ignorance to uh, Teddy and Stan, I believe it is, who are mildly interrogating him because he's gone AWOL. We then cut back to... Step in at any time if there's anything, um, any comment you'd like to make. Um, we then cut back and find that what has actually happened is Don has been shot in the chest. However, he has not just died. He is flat on the back, uh, on his back, lying down, blood pouring out of his stomach uh, as he continues to verbally abuse everyone. Gaul then uses this <laughs> as his opportunity um, to lunge, to take out his, uh, his built-up frustrations and he starts shouting at Don and punching him and just about everyone joins in. Yeah. Um, it's a really, it's a really on, on the page and in the final thing, it's really quite a violent... Yeah, they all kick him to it's death. It's like an orgy of violence, yeah. And even yeah. when Don manages to turn to Jackie, who comes out and say, you know, is, is watching what's going on, and he manages to get out, Jackie, I love you, I love you. She then comes over and starts kicking him in the head. Um, yeah. But so... Um, yeah, yeah. Go, go, but this is, I mean, this is act three. So the moment, this is kind of, this is one of those, this is, I think, the only time in the script where there's like a clear delineation of, okay, now we're stopping and stepping into the next part. Yeah. And it's that moment where he arrives in London. Yeah. But again, it's not a clear delineation because it, the climax of act two, which is um, obviously Don being shot, what happens then afterwards? And there's a whole, you know, all of, the, the fight that you've just described and everything that happened since, you know, eventually he gets buried underneath the swimming pool that was destroyed by the boulder in the very opening scene. Um, mm -hmm. All of that, which is really the climax of Act 2, gets fragmented and then scattered throughout Act 3. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, and this is also, you know, this is the moment when he walks into that group of people where they reference the Rembrandt painting. So you mm. know you are suddenly in... And, he, you know, Jonathan Glazer does it brilliantly in the film. The entire colour, palette, atmosphere, mood of oh, the whole changes, film changes yeah. Yeah. just in an instant. Um, well, so back at the... Uh, just before we move into that, that the, the heist part, um, so everyone is piling on to Don. He seemingly won't die until Dee Dee shoots him again in the chest. 
Uh, he f- then gets one more line out before H drops a barbecue on his head in the screenplay. Um, we then come back to London and the crew are having dinner, including Don's brother. I think his, his name's uh, Malky or Malky? Malky. Malky. Um, uh, Gould calls Dee Dee to, to reassure, reassure her that everything's going to be okay. This is that phone call, Billy, that you referenced yeah, yeah. I earlier. The like poetry, it, yeah. The, the, yeah, yeah. The, the somewhat, are you suggesting the somewhat forced sort of romantic... Um, no, no, I think it's genuine. I think uh, this is what I don't mean kind of insist in a forced way. Like it, it is, it's kind of the most genuine thing in the whole film. It's his love for her is just the most powerful thing in his life. And it's kind of beautiful and stunning to watch. And you watch a man like Gao played like played by Ray Winston, try and kind of squeeze out this poem that expresses that this, you know, <laughs> distills and crystallizes his love for her. Like it's just, it's incredibly moving and powerful to watch and then eventually he sort of ends it and says um you know i've got to put the phone down i've got to go but just just say my name for me please just once and she says gal so the next morning uh gal is having breakfast alone he has a vision of herman the hare approaching him and pointing a gun at his head but it is just teddy who again asks about don we we start to get the um the suggestion that he knows what's happened um, because he seems to know that Don didn't call uh, Gal from Heathrow. Gal manages to keep it cool, maintains eye contact, keeps eating his English breakfast, uh, at least in front of Teddy. But in the next scene, he's in a panic. He's packing. It's his fight or flight moment. What does he do? Um, and uh, we then see back in Spain that the swimming pool is being retiled as H watches. And then we come to the heist itself. We see Teddy's plan was, in fact, to break into the bank vault through the wall of the adjoining Turkish baths. Yeah, and you get this. See, this is I kind of I love this scene, and it's one of my favorite high scenes ever. But most people don't think about it when they think about this film. Um, it's a yeah, it's an underwater high scene. Really awkward, very uncomfortable. So. Yeah, very awkward, mm. very uncomfortable. A, f- a lot of kind of fat middle-aged yeah. Cockney gangsters trying to squeeze through <laughs> drills. It's not, it's not Ocean's Eleven. It's not highly sophisticated. Not, There's no like, like, handing off of documents to each other as they walk past. There's no speaking into earpieces. No, it's it's uh, brutal grunt work in a Turkish bar. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, but it, like visually extraordinary um it looks stunning you haven't ever seen a high scene like that especially the moment where they break through yeah and they are quite literally swimming in cash and gold and jewels and it's floating around them and they are yeah desperately trying to scrabble and pick up everything they possibly can and get out of there um and it's yeah it's what i think it's one of the most underrated high scenes ever and because it goes back to that thing we were talking about earlier which is you don't think of this as a heist film because it deliberately turned left quite a while ago when it should have continued on the road and given you a heist film that you recognise. And the film cuts, I can't remember whether the script does it quite the same, but in the film it cuts the high scene, um, it cuts the high scene and the beating Don to death scene together. Yes, yeah. And as he goes deeper and deeper into this hole that they're digging through the Turkish bath walls into the bank on the other side, you know, he starts to see Don lying on the floor at the other end of the darkness and, you know, covered in blood, shotgun wound to the stomach and everybody piling in, beating him to death. Yeah, it's, and, sli- it's slightly more separated in the, yeah, in the screenplay. Yeah. 
and I think it's a really important point. I think that it tells you that it goes back to this is the thing that it kind of crystallizes what we've been talking about the whole time. It's just like this is a heist movie, but it's also not a heist movie at the same time. So your heist scene and the killing Don scene are one and the same. They're no different from one another. It's not one thing you have to go through so you can eventually get to the next scene. They, as far as story is concerned, the high scene is paramount. As far as character and psychology is concerned, beating Don to death, you know, exercising the demons of your past and all of that is paramount. And they're the exact same thing happening. They're, they're the both climaxes. Moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so following the uh, break-in, which goes brilliantly, the vault fills with water. They, they, they collect their loot, as we just mentioned. So afterwards, they're celebrating, um, you know, everyone's happy and cigars and they can't believe how perfectly it went. But Gal wants to leave quickly, but Teddy insists on giving him a lift. Uh, So on the way, Teddy says he needs to make a stop. So they stop at what turns out to be Harry's house, the the bank manager from uh, from the orgy who gave Teddy the idea for the job. So they go inside. And Teddy just point blank pulls out a gun and shoots him in the head in front of Gal. And Gal tells him, I'm not into this anymore. Yeah, and I think before Gal says that, um, Teddy asks him, what happened to Don? Mm. And that's the And that's Gal's response is, I'm not into this anymore. anymore. And again, there's another kind of, um, you know, that to me is very similar to that scene between Don and Gal where Don says to him like you know are you happy yeah i'm happy well i won't let you why should i where they finally get down to the actual truth of what it is that they're talking about and that moment where gal says that to teddy like i'm not into this anymore i just don't have that thing in me and if you want to look at don as a kind of physical embodiment of that thing that probably gal used to have about himself it's again very similar to you know it's a trope that you kind of you know from crime films of um, you know, the criminal who just doesn't have it in him anymore and wants out. It's a common mm-hmm. trope in gangster films. In, you know, you see it in all sorts of things. Yeah. So Teddy then does drop uh, Gal off at the airport um, and there is the moment where he gives him his cut of the job, which is a bit of a slap in the face sort of moment, but it's, I guess it's sort of a, well, look, this is what you get considering what you've done. Um, he tells him his cut of the job is a tenner. And then just to humiliate him, he says he only has 20s. So do you have any change? Mm. Um, which is just right. It's excellent. And it's just the, la- the sort of the last humiliation that Gal has to uh, endure. Brutal. Yeah, very brutal. Absolutely brutal. So then we are um, cut to back in Spain and life is returning to normal. Gal is floating in his now fixed pool, but we hear Don's voice. I told you you'd do the job. To which Gal replies, yeah, well, you were right. Technically speaking, you were right, but you're dead. So shut up. And then the final image is we go deep under the pool where Don is buried and Herman, the man hair, is there smashing open uh, Don's coffin who finds Don. And in the screenplay, Don turns to Herman and says, what's up, Doc? And then we're sort of left with the impression that uh, Herman is uh, doing something to Don because he says, what are you doing? Stop that. That hurts. Don't do that. But in the film, of course, he's just sort of nonchalantly smoking a cigarette and wants to know what he wants. Just sort of turns to Herman and says, what? Uh, And that's the end. That's That's the end of Sexy Beast. There's one other little moment just before that that I would, um, that I think is worth mentioning where, and it's in that final exchange between Teddy and Gal. Yeah. And just before Teddy says to him, like, oh, so what was your cut? 
I'm going to give you a tenner. Just before he says that, he makes some reference to, oh, I hear it's, um, I hear it's nice out there in Spain. Yeah. It sounds like you've got a really lovely life out there. I must come and visit. I will. <laughs> yes. I will one day. And it's that... <laughs> And, you know, similar to the How the Sopranos ended, it's like it, there is a seeming return to normality, but it's never done. It's, it's never, never always look right. over your shoulder yeah. Yeah. forever. Well, that, that is why I, I, uh, I, I identified it as a black comedy, because for the most part, there is this sort of lingering sort of, you know, hint that all yeah. won't be well. But for the, for the most part, things do return to normal. Which I know is like is part of what a comedy is. If, if everything, if it ends the way it began, um, that is signs of a, a comedy. Yeah, I hear that. And also, you know, being frank, it is very, very funny. Oh, it's funny. It's it's funny. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I think also just you know the the, the wordplay, the Cockney sort of slang stuff, just immediately makes things comedic for me anyway i just you know i get so much enjoyment out of listening to those people banter back and forth yeah for everyone it's and this is where this is where you get the kind of uh you know and the sort of tarantino did it particularly well with kind of american sort of dialect but Mm -hmm. it's exactly right it is it's like it's a type of language um that is just rooted in humor and witticism and taking the piss it's all of that it's and you know australians throwing insults that's it you know the way it's it's one of the kind of bits of british language and australian language that um has always kind of overlapped in my mind well billy this has been a a, a real joy before we wrap up any final thoughts um kia i'll go to you first anything final you'd like to add Uh, no just a um just a yeah great pick of a screenplay that you know stands uh as a as a really fantastic piece of art on its own two feet you know, it's um, even even if it had never become the amazing film that it did, um, just on the page, it is it's a real joy to read. Billy, yeah. any final thoughts? Yeah, I agree with that. The, the the only the final final thing I would say is that this is one of those examples which I found. I you know I've seen this film God knows how many times over however many years, and I've never read the script until recently, and it is so similar how close the script is to the film. There are a few moments which, you know, I think you pointed out, David, where, you know, things were cut and things weren't used and things were slightly changed. But how close that script is to that final film, I think is just an extraordinary achievement of the writers themselves. And they once said in an interview that I think I've read of theirs that they already, they've already seen all of their films before it gets made because it was there on the page. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is just a testament to what an ex- what an incredible piece of writing that is. Like, how could you make a bad film out of it? It's all yeah. there. Just follow it. Yeah. Well, on that note, Kia Wilkins, Billy Bowering, thank you so much. This has been a real joy. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you. Thanks, David. You've done it.